This is a HeadGum Podcast. Universal FanCon is a brand new convention coming to the Baltimore Convention Center in April of 2018. FanCon will be a round-the-clock event featuring comics, cosplay, gaming, celebrity guests, music, and more with a focus on diversity and inclusion. Get your tickets now at UniversalFanCon.com because geek is universal. Welcome to our new podcast, Misty Nights Uninformed Afro. The new podcast series will dive into the origin stories, character development, and story arcs of our favorite black superheroines and characters in comics. These are the obscure stories you don't always hear about, and we share commentary on some of our favorite moments in comics. We're going into deep discussions about Storm, Misty Knight, Monica Rambeau, Vixen, Amanda Waller, Riri Williams, Lunella Lafayette, and the Dora Milaje. The series has two hosts, founder and managing editor of BlackGirlNerds.com and host of the BGM podcast, yours truly, Jamie Broadnax, and Stephanie Williams, host of The Lemonade Show. Each episode will reference comic book issues, dates, and creators. That way you can go back and check out the stories for yourself. By the end of the series, you will become a certified expert in the fictional world of black superheroines. Please subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear what you think about the show. See you soon. Marcus Scribner from Blackish, and you're listening to Black Girl Nerds. Hello, my name is Corey Glover. I'm from the band Living Color, and right now you're listening to Black Girl Nerds. Hey, this is Jada Pinkett Smith, and you're listening to Black Girl Nerds Podcast. Hello, this is Jordan Peele, the director of Get Out, and you are listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. Hello, I'm Regina Hall, and you are listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. I'm Dee Watkins, New York Times bestselling author of The Cook-Up and The B-Side. You are now listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. We are the Lucas Pros, and we were just on Black Girl Nerd Podcast, and it's fantastic. And listen to it every every day, every hour, because they are awesome. My name is Idris Elba, and you are listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. Hi, I'm Andre Meadows. I have a YouTube channel, Black Nerd Comedy. Have you heard of it? Don't matter, because you are listening to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast, the best podcast in the whole world that I'm doing a promo for right now. Boom! Black 
Booties for Black Girl Nerds. Thanks for tuning in to episode 127 of the Black Girl Nerds podcast. My name is Jamie and I am your host. This episode is titled TIFF 2017 and Between Lost and Found. Three segments. In our first segment, we have a sit-down chat with the artistic director of TIFF, also known as the Toronto International Film Festival, Cameron Bailey. And in this segment, Cameron sits down with Jacqueline and Lauren, and they talk about everything from this year's films, documentaries, features, shorts, and everything in between. And as you know, our team is going out to Toronto this week to cover everything from red carpet interviews, from one-on-ones, and so much more. So stay tuned for more footage from BGN on TIFF. In our second segment, Carolyn sits down on a one-on-one with documentary programmer for TIFF, Tom Powers. He gives us an inside look of what documentaries are premiering this year. I know I personally have some favorites. We currently have an article on Black Girl Nerds about our most anticipated films over at TIFF. So check that out. A lot of them feature some in the documentary category. In our third segment, we shift over to an interview with Shelley Stratton, featuring Kindle. Shelley Stratton is the author of the book called Between Lost and Found. And an also fun fact about Shelley, she's the co-author on my upcoming book called Black Girl Nerds. So sit back, relax, and enjoy BGN 127, TIFF 2017, and Between Lost and Found. Cameron Bailey is a film critic and festival programmer. He has been the artistic director of the Toronto International Film Festival since 2012. Born in London, England, to parents in Barbados, he spent his early childhood in St. James, Barbados before moving to Canada with his family at the age of eight. Educated at the University of Western Ontario, he worked as a film reviewer for NOW, Canada AM, CBC Radio 1, Take One, and other publications before joining TIFF as a programmer. So everyone, we want to go ahead and welcome you back. We are sitting down and having a conversation this morning with the artistic director, Cameron Bailey, for the Toronto International Film Festival, who is so gracious to sit down with us on this very busy morning where they announced the full schedule of the festival. Cameron, how are you doing this morning? I'm good. I'm good. I'm excited. Excellent. Well, I will go ahead and say I'll start off with, you know, TIFF this year, you guys kind of changed it up a little bit, although I don't feel any different because I feel like there's just a huge ray of just so many great films again. But um, this is a smaller selection this year, and you guys made the decision before the schedule was announced that you were going to do with some tracks of the films, um, no longer Mm -hmm. doing the city to city. Can you talk to me about how you guys came to that decision and what kind of brought you to that for this year? Yeah, you know, we were a public festival. We're 
I think the largest public festival in the world. And our audience loves the choice and the range of movies that we give them every year, but we're also a festival for the film industry and for the media that covers movies. And, you know, people were struggling, and they would tell us that, look, you got so many movies, um, it's hard to be able to see all the films that we need to see here. Um, and sometimes, you know, the films themselves would feel that they would they would struggle to get the attention that they 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 should uh, when they make their premieres. So we decided to tighten up. It's not a drastic um, reduction, but it is a little bit of a reduction um, that will allow, I think, each film to get a little bit more of the spotlight that happens here in Toronto, um, while still giving the range of choice to the audience. Yeah, so can you talk to us, uh, what was the, was there any change in the selection process besides the numbers? Did, was there some things where you're just like, okay, we're not going to maybe look at this direction, or, or how did that change the selection process? Not so much. I mean, we looked across the board in terms of how to make the trims that we wanted to make. Um, so you'll see, you know, slight reduction from almost everywhere. We had gotten very big in terms of certain particular regions. I think North America, Western Europe, that tends to be where a lot of the movies come from. So trying to trim that back a little bit while maintaining the international selection. We still have movies from about 70 countries this year, so that's good. Um, but really it was just a matter of telling uh, the entire programming team that, you know, you're going to have to make some tough decisions this year, maybe tougher than you've made in recent years. So, you know, it meant saying no more often, and sometimes that was absolutely brutal because these might have been films that we liked and we just didn't have the room that we'd had in previous years. Yeah, I was just going to say, I, I always feel like, you know, for you to say which is your favorite be like choosing between your children – but maybe mm -hmm. you can answer me this. <laughs> Since you've been with the festival, um, there's some artists that always seem to come back, like Denzel mm -hmm. is a repeat, you know, and mm -hmm. this, this year Idris is back again with two films. Who mm -hmm. are, would you say are maybe a couple of your favorite filmmakers that just keep coming back and you always try to mm -hmm. get them involved in the festival as possible? Yeah, I mean, there there are several people like that. Um, you know, we showed uh, Pariah a few years back, and we're really glad that Dee Reeves is going to be coming back with Mudbound that's playing as a gala this year. When Pariah played, it was in the Discovery section, playing on a much smaller scale, but she's made a bigger scale movie, and we're going to give it the presentation we think it deserves. I think some people would have seen it at Sundance, but it's now breaking out as one of the big films of the year in the fall season, so we're thrilled to have that. Um, you know, Darren Aronofsky, he's a New Yorker, he's close by to, to us in Toronto, and he sometimes comes up, even when he doesn't have a movie, just to watch films, and I love that. So now this year he has a movie, he's got one of the most anticipated movies of the year, and I'm not going to tell you a thing about it, because it's better if you walk in cold, but Mother is unbelievable, and um, I think this is going to be one of the movies that, that people are talking about coming out of Toronto this year in a big way. Yeah, I, I will say it's definitely on the high anticipated list. I do feel like mm -hmm. like Darren's films in general are always out there and, and, and different and avant-garde and then having uh, Jennifer Lawrence in it. I mean, whatever. I, I've, every year that, you know, the TIFF schedule comes out, if you check my Twitter feed this morning, I was literally, it's like Christmas. I'm ready. I'm like, let's go. Like, I want to know what's Good. coming. And mm -hmm. <laughs> I know you guys are going to always have, like, surprises as far as, the film that you think maybe going in um, is going to be different. But, you know, last year, I feel like we were so blessed 
with mm. the the selections of last year. I mean, um, I feel like if City to City had to um, have its swan song, having it with Nollywood was like the best mm-hmm. way to do it. For those that weren't we were there, never I went top last year. You know, I mean, yes. City to City had been running for eight years, and we did some great, great years, but. Lagos was on another level. There's no way we were ever going to top it. So I think that was the way to go out. Yeah, I think you're right. Because I just feel like I went to that gala and like, if, I, I wish I could describe it to the folks at home. It was the most like wide array of just beautiful black excellence and filmmaking and fashion and everything. I was mm-hmm. just like, this is black Hollywood, man. Like, I just want to live here, be here, never leave mm-hmm. here. Um, mm-hmm. And then to top that off, you know, having two of the biggest films um, from an award standpoint at the um, at the festival last year, and then so were you there? Were you at the Oscars when this all goes down? I would imagine you probably I, were. I was, maybe. yeah. I mean, actually, I, you know, I'm not. I don't usually go to the Oscars. I happen to look out this year, but um, I was there in the room when that craziness happened uh, for Best Picture. Yeah, so what's, what's the describe that looks like for you? Because you on. know those filmmakers, yeah, really yeah. well. Yeah, and it was it was wild because, you know, La La Land had this momentum, and I think a lot of people expected it to be the Best Picture winner. Then when it was, it was announced, the people sitting around me were all freaking out. They were all really happy. I think some of them had worked on the film. But then when when the shift happened, it was just like, people weren't sure what was true anymore. Do you know what I mean? It's like, yeah, <laughs> did it really win? And what's going on? And it was bizarre. And the the whole rest of the night, we were all just kind of shaking our heads. I happened to see Mahershala um, later that night. He was still, he was holding on to his Oscar, happiest man in the world, most exhausted man in the world too. He'd been going nonstop. I think his wife had just um, given birth as well. So he was looking forward to just taking some time off and celebrating, but it was an unforgettable night. Yeah, I can only imagine. I Like I said, I, I feel like very distantly, you know, associated with the film because I was there that night when you did the Q&A, and, like, from that moment on, I was that girl that was screaming, it's going to win all the awards. I don't care what anyone says. He's showing off the awards. I don't care. That, that Q&A was um, amazing because – I mean, I think, yes. you know, what happens at our festival sometimes is, you know, people go off and make a movie. Sometimes it's a year before it premieres or something. And then sometimes they're gathering all together for the very first time uh, in Toronto. And they haven't seen it together as a group until then. And just the emotion that comes out, um, it's it's really something, it's, it's, it's an honor to be in the room with that, you know, the, the, the artists who actually made the movie and they're sharing that with you in that moment. It's, it's incredible. Yeah. Well, I just um I'm going to go ahead and hand this off to to Lauren, but I'll just go ahead and say that was that was a, a memorable night for me. It was I I'll never forget that night cuz I was getting emotional. Like everyone on the stage was emotional. It was definitely one of those moments where I'll that I'll keep in my like film brain as a film geek and be like, "I saw the, <laughs> you know, the, the international premiere of Moonlight and that mm-hmm. movie was everything." Mm-hmm. Um but uh yeah, go ahead, Lauren. Sure, sure. So 2016, last year, was just an absolute banner year. There were 296 features. Half of them were world premieres. I think between them all, there were, what, 59 Oscar nominations, and it was spread across 11 venues. And after Mm -hmm. you downsize, what kind of criteria do you give your programmers? Do you give them criteria, or do you just let them go on their gut with, uh, you know, sort of uh, reconfiguring this this slimmed-down 
uh, festival. Well, you know, we, we've got a, a big programming team, and um, each one of them is an expert in his or her field. So I tell them to just find the best films that you can, and then it's my job working with our, our director of programming, Carrie Kratis, to make sure that we find the overall balance. So, you know, Diana Sanchez, for instance, is programming Latin America for us, as well as Spain and Portugal. She's got, just got to find the best lineup that she can, and then we have to make sure that that the mix that she's put together fits with everything else in terms of just the numbers and the scale and all that sort of thing. So it's a kind of a complex process in terms of putting it all together. We always hope that the the final result has the depth and the breadth, the balance that we're looking for. But um, it's you know it's a it's a kind of an ongoing process every year. Um, and then things just turn up, you know, by accident in a way. So, for instance, there happen to be all these documentaries this year about these real icons um, of black culture. The great documentary about Sammy Davis Jr. that Sam Pollard made. Um, there's um, the, the Jean-Michel Basquiat doc about when he was a young man, before, just on the verge of becoming um, the famous artist. The Grace Jones documentary that Sophie Fines made is incredible. Um, there's the documentary about Andre Leon Talley. Um, you know, it's it's a and and also one about um, Lorraine Hansberry called Sighted Eyes, Feeling Heart. Um, and if you, I mean, it, for anybody who's got the interest and the time to sit down and watch all of those films, what's amazing is to see not just you know that these were incredible talents and artists, but that they had these personal stories. Like I didn't know a lot about Sammy Davis Jr.'s. Um, a career as a child performer and what he went through as a young uh, artist and a, and a young man um, mm -hmm. before he became, you know, the, the, the member of the Rat Pack and all of that. Um, and it's fascinating. It gives it a, a kind of a depth um, that you wouldn't have any other way. So, you know, I think that's one of the things that just came together. We didn't go out looking for all of these docs, but they just happened to, to be ready and to be good. And I see that there's more television working its way into the programming. Um, does, will that trend continue in the upcoming years? Yeah. Yeah, look, we um, we started this three years ago, the primetime program, um, and it's a way for us to follow the, the filmmakers who are doing interesting work to discover people who are working also in long-form uh, storytelling um, for broadcast or for streaming services who have the same kind of vision, the same kind of unique personal stamp that the best filmmakers do. Um, last year, we launched uh, season three of Transparent, and we had Jill Soloway come up. And, you know, she's equal to any great film tour, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, we've got David Simon's new show this year. Um, same thing could be said for him. Um, these are great storytellers, and they happen to be working in a format that, you know, we didn't use to show, but our audience is looking to it. We think the, the level of, of art and of craftsmanship is definitely equal to the best films. So, um, you know, we're, we're committed to continuing this. And you've got Larry Wilmore, Glenn Close, and Morgan Spurlock doing uh, sort of, I guess, talks. Uh, about that's their right. time in the industry. That's that's a pretty awesome lineup. Can you tell us, especially with Larry Wilmore, how did that come about? Yeah, we um, you know we do an industry conference that runs as part of the festival every year, and we try to to bring people in who've got interesting stories to tell. Um, and you know our programmer uh, Karina Rotenstein, who um, who is um, a big fan of Larry Wilmore, when we found out that he was available. 
um, you know, she jumped on that, and um, and he could come up here, uh, talk a little bit about what he's been through, um, and how he puts his work together. And you know, he's one of a number of people who are going to be sharing their insights. The industry conference really is a great place to um, get a kind of behind the scenes look of you know how this work comes together. You know, when you see it on TV, you see it on your screen, you see it on the movie screen, it looks like it was just always that way, but there's always um, a story behind it, often a whole lot of battles behind getting something made, and um, mm-hmm. that's exactly the kind of thing Larry's going to talk about. Great. Yeah, thank you so much, I'll go ahead Cameron. and say, um, sorry, Lauren, thank you. Um, I was just going to say, I'm excited about Larry one more because I feel like we're missing out on his just steering commentary on what's going on yeah, right I know. now. Especially like... now, right? <laughs> yes, Lord. I just don't know how Comedy Central could have been that short-sighted, but I know they yeah. must be regretting it now because I would be tuning in every night to listen to him just go off mm-hmm. on this mess. So um, mm-hmm. anyway, I'm, I'm, I'll be there for that one, needless to say. Um, yeah. It's funny that you mentioned the, yeah, the behind-the-scenes, though, because with these films, I know for a fact, yes, most of them are done. That's true when they when they get decided to come to the festival. But you guys are always wheeling and dealing. And I wouldn't be surprised if you guys are still making phone calls on films now to be like, hey, are you going to get this cut in time? So mm-hmm. I know that's how it works because you guys always, like as soon as I like make our, as, a, as the producer of our coverage, as soon as I make the list, There'll be like a last minute addition. They'll be like, "Oh my gosh, they're still going." <laughs> so well, all I would say, good? yeah, we. Oh, um, no, go ahead. We, no, say again. No, I was just gonna say, look, we we uh, we launched the full list of the lineup um, today and the schedule as well. So I would make the schedule based on what we've shown you, but you know, don't be surprised if one or two things happen <laughs> to drop at the last minute. So you know, we like to keep you guessing. I, I, I'm I okay with that. I love that because it, right. it feels, again, like a secondary Christmas. But can you mm-hmm. give me a good story of, like, one of those last-minute, okay, we made it and we added it, and it's like they just got it cut and they are literally sending us the print, you know, as late as you can make mm-hmm. it. Can you give me a story of how a film made it to the festival that way? Um, well, look, I'll tell you one that we just announced um, a few days back, the Louis C.K. movie. Um, and this was amazing because we had no idea it was coming. Um, we have a pretty wow. comprehensive tracking system. We've got a, a bunch of people who are following everything that's in production, in post-production, is, is affiliated with a major sales company or a distributor. Um, so we know what's out there. Uh, but this came completely out of the blue. Louis C.K. literally called into the office um, and he spoke to Louisa, who worked with me, and he said, hi, my name is Louis C.K., I made a movie. <laughs> and I was like, what? Wow. <laughs> oh, my God. I got back to him right it. away, and he sent us the movie, and, I mean, I love it. It's called I Love You, Daddy. Um, and then we started talking about it, and we had, like, no time to actually turn it around. So, um, you know, as soon as we started talking, uh, you know, the schedule was almost done. We barely had a place to fit it into the festival, but, you know, it's a new movie by Louis C.K., and it's really good. There's no way we're going to not find a way. So, you know, over the weekend, we had to work to figure it out, um, got back to him. It all worked out. We're going to be showing it. It's going to premiere um, on the first Saturday of our festival, um, and we are thrilled. But, you know, this came 
so out of the blue, and it made us feel like, how come we didn't know? But then we didn't feel bad because <laughs> nobody else either. Right? We started to call yeah. people making this movie. I love that that's so him, though. Like, he's just like, yeah. I'm Louis C.K., and I want to make a movie, and here it is. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love that so much. <laughs> I do. People, I mean, people, people in our audience may know, but just remember, like, Louis C.K. and Chris Rock go way back to the Chris Rock show, yep. and, like, he's been right. writing and directing mm-hmm. forever. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really excited about what he brings to the table. <laughs> I can't wait. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, the next thing I was, I was just going to say, I, I love that story, too. Like, I'm going to tell that to everyone. He's like, you don't even know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so the other thing I was going to say is you had one of my – favorite quotes from last year about the cinematic experience being dead because I'm actually a proponent of what you said. I know like you're later like, mm-hmm. oh, these people are coming back saying it wasn't a good thing. But because mm-hmm. I'm a fan of this idea now where theater purveyors have to give an experience. And for me, I believe that it helps things like film festivals that I'm in love with because it is an experience. Because you're there with mm-hmm. cinephiles who are going to want to talk about this movie, you know, whether it's Toronto and it's got all of this just like, I would say like pomp, but also just auteurs of the highest level to something like as Bananas is Fantastic Fest down here in Austin where it's gore and cannibals. Um, mm-hmm. What would you say to folks to say this is why the festival experience is one of the best cinematic experiences you should do and you should take the time and the money to do it? Mm. Um, look, I think uh, the the film object, the actual film itself, used to be what made festivals different, that you could only see certain films at a film festival, right? If you wanted to see some art house films or some weird genre films, you'd only get a chance to see it at a festival. That's no longer the case. People have all mm-hmm. kinds of ways of seeing movies, streaming services, um, you know, DVDs and Blu-rays. People do it legally and illegally. You can find a lot of stuff um, on your own now. What you can <laughs> do is um, is have an experience that just changes you, you know. That happens mm-hmm. with other people in a movie theater, and it happens, I think, especially when the filmmakers are there, right? When somebody's going to uh, introduce the film to you, set it up for you, tell you the story behind how they made it, why they made it, why it was important to them. You get to watch it with other people. You get to watch it for the first time sometimes um, before anybody else has seen it, and then you get to, to talk about it afterwards. You know, the filmmaker will do a Q&A. You'll get to talk with the people you came with or meet new people in the theater or in the lineups. Uh, and that's that's something unique. You can't get that any other way. Um, you know, we showed um, at the Lightbox here in Toronto uh, a couple of months ago. We showed Ocha, the Bong Joon-ho movie that was at Cannes, and that's mm-hmm. a Netflix mm-hmm. movie. And we showed it for a week at the Lightbox, the same week it launched on Netflix. So you could just you know go on to Netflix and watch Ocha if you wanted to, but we did it in a big house on a big screen with amazing sound, and we had a, a Q and A by Skype with Bong Joon-ho, who was in Seoul, and he woke up early so he could talk to our audience, you know, after the movie. <laughs> and that's something that you, you can't get by just watching it on Netflix, right? So it's enhancing that experience with everything else that I think makes festivals worthwhile. Yeah, I um, you're preaching to the choir again. I love the festival mm-hmm. experience, and I think you really kind of clicked on it. And I think, too, one thing that I think people are getting now is a film like Get Out, you can watch home or on Netflix or even by yourself, but that film is best in a theater, hopefully a mixed race theater, and mm-hmm. the conversations that are had in the lobby afterwards. So, like, it's not even yeah. sometimes about the, 
the, the screen, although Jordan shot a beautiful movie, don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. But to me, mm-hmm. that's part of the cinematic experience. It's the conversations around the films. And so I am just like, this is why this matters. But um, you bring me to my last point, since you brought up Cam mm-hmm. and you brought up Ocha, because there is a little bit, I would say, your festival is not like this. You guys seem to embrace every different track, whether it even be VR or streaming services. But there is a bit of a resistance, it feels like, with the streaming services. And it's almost like the way I, I heard it a few years ago between digital film production versus, you know, shooting on celluloid and, and traditional film production. Do you mm-hmm. feel this is something that will eventually stop being a part of the conversation, how people view it, or is this really going to be a dividing line for people because it's really cutting into the to the the general revenue of mm-hmm. movie making? Yeah, I, I think this will go away, but I do think that there is a phenomenon that continues, which is wherever there's a, a big shift in the technology or the, the, the industry in terms of how movies are presented, there's always a lag, and there's people who want to hold on to the way things are and have been, and there's people who are ready to leap into the future. Um, and I understand both in a way, you know. I mean, leaping into the future means that you leave something behind sometimes, and I, I get that, and the fear around it, but you know, this is a medium and an art form that has always changed. You know, we this is you know, we weren't around for it, but you know, movies change from silent to sound, from black and white to color, from uh, celluloid to digital. There's always been technological changes. T V came in and then VHS and then D V D and each time people said, Oh, this is the death of movies. Movies are never gonna be the same <laughs> You know, and right now it's, oh, you know, Amazon, Netflix, that's going to change movies forever. No, it won't. Um, What will happen is that how we experience movies will shift and adjust, but the fundamentals in terms of the power of storytelling, the power of the moving image of performance, um, and the way that we can experience that together, that's always going to be there. Well said. I I think that's great. And then (laughs) to everyone again, um, please follow along with the Toronto International Film Festival at tiff.net. Cameron, where can folks find you online? Um, They can find me on Twitter at Cameron underscore Tiff and at uh, Cameron P. Bailey on Instagram. And I'm going to be posting the hell out of things. (laughs) (laughs) week's time because there's a lot going to be happening at the festival. It starts on September 7th and um, yeah, I hope you guys can make it. I'll see you here for sure, right? Yep. Yes, you will see us All here. Right. Um, I'm <laughs> yes. gonna, I already seen Mudbound, but I'm going to be seeing it again. Professor nice. Marsden is like my first, like Angela talked to us about it at Comic-Con and oh, nice. I'm so ready yep. for that movie. I can't even stop, but thank you so much for oh, chatting I, with us. I forgot to mention, sorry, I forgot to mention one movie um, the uh, film called A Season in France that Mahamat Saleh Haroun made. This is one of my favorite okay. films in the festival. We're making the world premiere. Oh. Um, people talking a lot about migration these days. This is the story of two Africans living in Paris, um, and he, he gets to the heart of what that's like right now, and uh, it's a great film. Oh, oh wow. I can't wait to okay. see that, though. I haven't, yeah. I haven't circled in on that. I mean, even right, though y'all right, trimmed down, it still takes a girl. It takes a girl a minute to get through. I know. I know. <laughs> <laughs> That's for sure. I'm on my first that round of sense. draft picks now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, I mean, it's a good time. But anyway, well, thank you so much again, Cameron, and uh, we'll see you in thank Toronto. You. All, right. All right, see you in Toronto. Take care. Bye bye. Bye. 
Tom Powers is a documentary programmer of the Toronto International Film Festival, where he's presented premieres by veteran directors such as Werner Herzog, Jonathan Demme, David Guggenheim, and Kevin Rafferty, as well as the first feature-length works of Adria Petty, Christopher Bellman, and Jeffrey Kasama-Hinte. For most of the year, Powers lives in New York City, where he is the founder and artistic director of the Stranger Than Fiction documentary series at the IFC Center. Since 2000, he has taught a class on documentary development at New York University's School of Continuing Professional Studies. Yeah, so I uh, grew up in Detroit, went to high school in this in the city, and moved to New York in my twenties and worked in documentary film, uh, making, directing, and producing documentary films for ten years, and then I decided that I wanted to spend more of my energy creating opportunities for people to see documentary films, um, and I started a series in New York City called Stranger Than Fiction. And then in 2006, I got hired by the Toronto Film Festival to be its documentary programmer. So this is my 12th year doing it. Right. Um, so can you tell me exactly what a documentary programmer is? Because I'll be honest, I wasn't sure. I said maybe it's like you're curating, you're in charge of curating documentaries. But Sure. Yeah. No, it's a, obviously a, a, a unique position. Yeah. Um, so the... The Toronto Film Festival has 21 programmers, it's, uh, more than most festivals uh, have, and each of us has a different specialty. So my colleague Diana Sanchez focuses on Latin American films, my colleague Giovanna Fulvi fo focuses on Asian films, and for me my brief is documentary films, so it doesn't have um, a geographical uh, limit. Um, although I certainly talk to my colleagues constantly who know other regions of the world better than I do to try to understand what's going on there. This year we got um, uh, hundreds of documentary film submissions as we do uh, every year. And I oversee a team of uh, pre-screeners, um, three women this year, um, who between the four of us, we watch uh, all those hundreds of films and narrow it down to a couple dozen that we get to pick and show at the festival. Right. Okay. So I know for this year, TIFF has um, decreased the amount of films that they're taking in. I think I saw online it was about like twenty percent. About twenty percent. Right. You know, in in recent years, we had uh, been you know the the number of feature length films that we were showing was you know creeping close to 300 I mean probably like around 270 280 actually don't know the exact numbers uh, but we you know we felt like it was um, a good idea to reduce that a bit to uh, and to get a little bit more focus now listen there's still you know way more films in this festival than any one human being uh, can take in uh, in 10 days but I think that the that the the, the the high number of films at the festival is a strength of our festival because within this one festival you have several other mini festivals you know you've got a documentary film festival going on you've got a midnight film festival going on you've got an experimental film festival in our wavelength section going on you could spend your uh, 10 days of the festival you know just watching Asian films or just watching Latin American films 
and if uh, we, you know, if if we were a smaller festival, we would not be able to cover that scope of world cinema. Right. Okay. So since you have to be more discerning in the films that you um, that you review, what exactly do you look for in a documentary that makes it that makes you say, since I have so little, mm-hmm. so since I have to be more discerning, what? Are you looking for and then yes, you, no, it's a great question say? because yeah. that you know there are so many films that we look at and so many really good films that we uh, look at. So one thing I'm always looking for in a film is to be surprised. You know, when I spend the summer watching a few hundred uh, films, uh, you start to see things that feel familiar, ways of telling stories that feel familiar, um, and uh, so I want to. You know, it, it, it strikes me when some, when I watch something and it feels like, gosh, I haven't seen this before. And that could either be in the way the story is being told or the subject matter um, or something that's just so fresh about the characters of the story that, you know, it reaches out from the screen and, uh, and pulls me in. Um, so this is a question that just occurred to me. Do you, guys, do you guys ever have a segment where you go back over previous documentaries? from like say probably like five years seven years ago where you can where viewers can can see if anything the different techniques because now we're more in the digital age and everyone is using dslrs and phones to record movies and documentaries or back in the day we had film and mm. everything was done on stock footage do you have segments like that within the film well um, without, sorry within the festival um the uh the festival um has plays a few retrospective films uh each year um, this year, that retrospective section is devoted to Canadian films because it's the 150th anniversary uh, of Canada. Um, and uh, in fact, one of those films um, is going to be playing uh, at Toronto's first IMAX theater. Or I should say the first IMAX theater in the world at, uh, at Toronto's Ontario place. Um, and this was a this was an early IMAX film that uh, showcases. Um, that, that showcases Ontario yeah. um, and the beauty of Ontario on this fantastic IMAX screen, and so you know, there's an example of uh, a format. Um, I think this film is from 1971, um, and uh, so that's a that's a format that is a big contrast to uh, the kind of filmmaking that happens today. I can imagine because even the lens, even the lens for cameras would have been slightly different back then because it wasn't made for like, I guess you could say, like the scope of IMAX. It's it's, it's it's different technology, yeah. um, and this uh, I, I haven't seen the restoration yet, but my colleagues who have seen it say it's quite amazing. Oh, might have to go and give it a look. I haven't been there in a few years. It's going to be going on the final weekend of the festival. And I, you know, there is going to be some bus transportation um, taking people to uh, to Ontario Place. It's a short film, yeah. um, but there's going to be other kind of special things uh, going on about it. So something that's very special. Uh, special story I heard about that film is that uh, Cameron Bailey, the artistic director of Toronto, he moved to Toronto from Barbados uh, when he was about nine years old in 1971 and within the first uh, week or so that he was here his mother took him to see this uh, film um, at Ontario Place and uh, and so now you know over four decades later uh, we're going to be showing it again. That's 
coincidental because I'm actually Bajan actually. Yeah. Okay. I moved here in 2009, so I didn't even know that he was Bajan. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, so for my next question, what about your job do you love the most? Um, you know, I the, the, there's a lot of things to in, uh, that are uh, pleasures in this job. Um, but probably the biggest for me is is interacting with the filmmakers. You know, I mean, I spent ten years as a filmmaker. I have uh, a huge amount of respect for the things they go through to um, uh, get these films made. You know, there are filmmakers who, uh, you know, probably the minimum length of time any filmmaker has spent on a film would be like two years and. Uh, some like Sophie Fines in her Grace Jones movie this year has been working on that for 10 years. So for me to be able to show a world premiere of those films after these filmmakers have spent so many years of hard work on these films and to finally get to uh, connect those films to an audience, it's, uh, it's a really privileged place to be. I can imagine since I started working with Bijan, I've gotten more um, I guess you could say introspection into how the into how the film industry works and into what being a director is because I've recently been doing um, a couple of interviews with uh, film directors. One was recently with a young lady called Bola Ogun, and she directed her first short. And as someone who loves movies, I I kind of underestimated the length of time it takes even to make a short. That's her, right. Yeah, her film is about I think it's about eleven minutes and some. And when she was talking to me, I started to calculate in my head when she was talking about, oh, this month and this month. I said, wait, how long have you been making this film? And she was like, oh, it's probably about two, two and a half years in total. I was like, oh. <laughs> and that's because like, it has to do with, especially for a small budget film, it has to do with the budget and she has to take the time to find a crew and then it has to, you have to work around their schedules because they work on other sets too. And well, it's a long process. My wife produced a short documentary called Joe's Violin that got nominated for an Academy Award uh, this past year. And, you know, it spent about a year. I'm just, oh, it's just, sorry for that beeping. It's my dishwasher, which will just open so that it stops that beeping. Um, but uh, uh, she uh, spent a year in production um, on the film Joe's Violin. And then another year getting it out into the world, uh, you know, figuring out its distribution and taking it to film festivals and all that good stuff. Yeah, um, I think a lot of people don't really appreciate how much, what it takes to make a movie. And I can say I've honestly been, I've always loved it, but I'm growing to appreciate it more and more. And uh, I think it's allowed me to be, not, ne not necessarily less critical, but more, open into why something isn't necessarily the way I think it is or the way I think it should well, be. Well, yes. It's, look, it's always important to remember that even the films that are disappointing to us have a lot of hard work and passion and emotion behind yeah, them. Yeah, that's why I'm always, um, now I've been a bit more careful in how I criticize a movie. I'll be honest. Sometimes it's like, what is happening? What is going on here? But then I have to tell myself, the cast and the crew, they still put a lot of time and effort into this, Carol, and appreciate that. That's, that is true. Yeah, that's like I was telling someone recently, like, I always stay to the end credits of a film in the cinema. When everyone is getting to leave it, I'm, I always stay. And my sister asked me, she's like, why? Well, I'm like, all these people deserve to get to see their names, too. Uh, the big, you have the big stars, but 
the, the gaffer and the boom operator, they deserve to get their name, see, their name seen too. So I always stay to the very last credit. Yeah, so this thing with show your appreciation. <laughs> like, if I'm going to criticize you, but let's not stay and see your name come up on the screen. <laughs> um, so um, my next question is, so how does the lineup for this year's festival compare to, the, to previous years? Hmm. Uh, you know, each year is uh, a little bit uh, different. Um, there's you know, typically there is a mix of um, documentary veterans. So for this, for instance, this year we've got Frederick Wiseman, who's been making films for fifty years, um, and then there's uh, some you know documentary newcomers. You know, um, sometimes first-time filmmakers. More often, more like people who are making their second or uh, or third film. We're always uh, looking to be representative of films from around the world. So this year we have films set in Liberia and Turkey and Serbia and Palestine and um, many other places, Bolivia. Um, and uh, I would say um, uh, this year, well, look, one notable thing uh, about this year's uh, program is we have more women directors than we ever had before. So spread across the Toronto Festival this year, there are 38 documentaries that, that includes not only the films that are playing in our TIFF doc section, but also films that are playing in other sections like Wavelengths and Gala and Masters. Um, but when you add up all the documentaries playing across the festival, there's 38 and exactly 50% of them, uh, 19 films are directed by women. Um, so that we, you know, that's a number that we're always looking at and it's been uh you know steadily rising uh, over the years so you know sometimes a little higher sometimes a little lower um but i'm you know really pleased that it came out that way this year okay so just to jump off of that so what do you think has changed in the not only the film industry but the documentary industry where you're seeing more female directors yeah well i think documentary has always been more accommodating for women directors than fiction. So why is that? Uh, you know, first of all, there's less money uh, at stake. Um, people can get projects started uh, uh, you know, without relying on gatekeepers as much as they have to uh, in the fiction world. You, know, you can do something like a Kickstarter campaign to get your project going. Um, also in the documentary world, more of the gatekeepers are women. Uh, when you look at the people who hold the purse strings, um, at HBO, there's Sheila Nevins. At Netflix, there's Lisa Nishimura. At Annie Indie Films, there's Molly Thompson. At Participant Media is Diane Wireman. So the documentary space is, is one where uh, you know, women executives um, have a, a, a lot of control, and, uh, and I think that that must translate into... Uh, women directors getting more opportunities. I guess, to me, it would seem that maybe women are finding an easier avenue in documentary because this is where they feel more comfortable telling their stories and getting more space to do it. They have more control over how they do it. I, whereas with the studio, you have to please the studio execs, you have to please the investors, you have to please the um, the script writer, the screenwriter, and everyone. So, I, well, I guess to me it makes sense. Um, and as and as for as someone who loves documentaries but also loves uh, feature films, this year has been both disappointing but also um, 
encouraging in the amount of women we've seen in big budget films as well because we have films like this year we have Girl Strip which is like an all female mm -hmm. main cast and we have Wonder Woman but then in situations like with Wonder Woman it's like there's still issues that I see as a black woman but then for next year we have a whole influx of feature films where we have A Wrinkle in Time mm -hmm. and we have Black Panther coming out and we have um, Proud Mary and those films have a lot of not only women behind the, behind the camera as well but in front of the, the camera as well and so for me I'm hoping with documentaries we can see more of that because there's so much other stories that can be told from a female perspective even if you have a documentary that's two documentaries that are on the same topic men and women will to me always tell it differently yeah well look this year at, at TIFF I think you do see a lot of you know great women behind the camera and in front of the camera I mentioned before Sophie Fines's film about Grace Jones uh, there's also uh, Tracy Heather Strain's film about Lorraine Hans Hansberry uh, called Sighted Eyes uh, Feeling Heart um, the Andre Leon Talley documentary The Gospel According to Andre is directed by Kate Novak uh, who's a, a woman who's spent a lot of time producing um, other documentaries in the past and this is her first time as a solo uh, director um, so there's you know there, there's a really strong range of material okay and so because TIFF is one of the largest film festivals in the world and it has such a large repertoire of films in different genres how do you think it compares to other film festivals such as Cannes and South by Southwest uh, well I mean those are two very different film festivals that you uh, use as examples um, you know I mean each each festival uh, that's been around for a while and established a reputation for itself um, has different qualities that partly have to do at what time of the year they are so you know the TIFF positioned in September um, of, it becomes an entryway into the fall season into award season so that uh, you know is uh, especially watched um, at the festival um, and then uh, you know any festival uh, I think is influenced by the city it's in and for me what's great about Toronto is that it's the most diverse city on earth um, so you know I know that if I put a film about uh, you know Bolivia or Serbia or Turkey um, I'm gonna get audiences that really know those regions that have roots in those regions coming out and um, you know sometimes you have festivals that take place in you know remote areas that uh, where you have much more of a monoculture um, and you know you could be showing a film about Asia there or showing a film about the Caribbean and you're not gonna get those audiences yeah. out there here in Toronto you do yeah this is it's true because not only because this the society is um, diverse but because the filmmakers themselves are diverse like everyone can see they, they have an opportunity to see themselves reflected back so the filmmakers when they come to the festivals they can see people of their own culture appreciating that's right I mean that's you know filmmakers um, I know really cherish that about coming to Toronto is that you know they can be showing uh, um, they're, they're gonna hear from people who really know their story right yeah and 
to me that's important because as someone from the Caribbean I I grew up seeing film as an outside as mm-hmm. an outside thing is like because the film industry market is it's a tiny it's a very very tiny thing but I love TV and I love movies and I love documentaries I I have a distinct memory of the one of the first documentaries I ever watched was about Jacques Cousteau mm-hmm. and that that image always sticks in my head with him on swimming with the whales and that's one of the first things that got me hooked on films and then I remember watching National Geographic and Discovery Channels and seeing in, um, I guess you could say documentaries on about Jane Goodall herself yep. and so when I saw the lineup about another movie about a, a film about her I was like this is my childhood again right. and I know I'm experiencing it in, in Toronto and to me that's a big deal because I'm like, I can connect a part of that a part of that to my childhood coming from the Caribbean and now um, realizing that Mr. Bailey he's Bajan to me that's also a big thing because I'm like hey if you got a Bajan in charge of something like Tiff <laughs> so right. it's, it's, it, there are different aspects that we can, that we can connect to and, and, and I think that's the beautiful things about film festivals apart from going to a cinema when you go to the cinema you have the experience for one or two hours or three Transformers um, <laughs> and then you leave but with a film festival there's different things that come out of it that you can see like over time that's right look i think half the experience is watching the film and the other half of the experience is the conversations that start afterwards and the things that you carry with that film into your life and and with documentaries um those things that you carry away uh i think are often very meaningful um you know i look i think about uh Morgan Spurlock's Supersize Me. Um, I remember when I, you know, originally uh, saw that, it changed my behavior. It changed the, my relationship to, to food. And now he's back this year with a sequel, Supersize Me 2, Holy Chicken is the Ooh. subtitle. Oh, and, uh, and I think it's one of his strongest works uh, since that original. Uh, you, you know, you might ask yourself, well, what more is there to say after the first one? Well, it turns out there's a lot to say. And uh, and I I can't wait for audiences to see that film. I I haven't I've never seen Super Size Me, um, but I know this this film the second one he has is probably gonna have an, a bigger impact than he may even realize because Netflix has a movie called What the it just hit my head What the Health or, What the Health yeah. and I know that because I'm on Twitter a lot and a lot of my friends they watch that and they came on Twitter and they're like oh my gosh yeah. so when I when I'm taking into context people the whole that film in, um, impacted people and then yes. you have this film coming from him is probably gonna be a well you know he I mean he's such a skillful filmmaker at using humor and pop culture to connect with wide audiences yeah. um, that I think his film has a, um, a special opportunity uh, to connect with audiences that that other documentaries that might be, you know, more dry or, um, uh, you know, more depressing uh, don't have that ability. Yeah, especially when it comes to food. Food is such a big part of our lives. When That's we right. See, when we see films about it, it can, it can really affect you in a big way. Like recently, I saw Okja. I did a review for it for the uh-huh. website, and it connected with me on a completely different plane to other people. A lot of people were like, "Oh, the pigs," and I was like. What about Steven Yeun, the guy that got his beat, that got that got his beat? Yeah. And, and that's what that's the way. So a lot of people are like, "Oh, I didn't really think about." It. I said, "Well, for me, I don't. I already don't eat pork anyway. Right. So, and that's for health reasons, for religious reasons. So, 
I, I, I was like, this is why I part the reason I don't eat pork anyway. <laughs> I need to, I'm trying to get off the beef and the chicken. Takes time. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I know like when we have films like that and then we have like documentaries like this, it's going to cause a big impact and a lot of people are, are going to be talking about it for probably an, another, a really long time. Yes, look, Super Size Me, that film came out 12 years ago. We're still talking about it. I did not realize it was that. Lord, time sure does fly. I feel old. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so um, so can you tell me a bit about your podcast, Pure Nonfiction? Yeah, thank you for asking. So I started it a year ago, and I uh, interview documentary filmmakers. So I've had Raul Peck, who made I Am Not Your Negro, and Ava DuVernay, who made 13th, and... Um, uh, Werner Herzog, uh, who was here at the festival last year with, uh, with Into the Inferno. Uh, so for me, it's a chance to sit down with these directors in, uh, with, with longer time than I would normally have in a film Q&A uh, at the festival and to go a little deeper um, into their careers and uh, behind the scenes with the films. Um, we've done over 50 episodes, um, and uh, in fact, we have a two-part episode uh, coming out this week that's a preview uh, of TIFF, um, where we've, we're going to um, reveal a lot of film clips for the, being made public for the uh, first time. Uh, so anyone who wants a better understanding of the films that are coming out at TIFF should listen to pure nonfiction episodes uh, of the TIFF preview. And this uh, fall, uh, we've got a new season of Pure Nonfiction, uh, season four. Some of the filmmakers we have coming up include uh, Yancey Ford, the director of Strong Island that's coming to Netflix uh, this fall. Um, also Jennifer Brea, who made a film called Unrest. Um, and Frederick Wiseman, uh, who's going to be at TIFF with his new film uh, called Ex Libris, the New York Public Library. Um, which uh, has, you know, it's a film about the New York Public Library. It's three and a half hours long. Um, and race is a very big theme in that film. Oh, I, I can imagine. I'm going to look forward to see that one because I like books and movies about books and libraries. Yes, it's, look, it's just, it, it's a pleasure to, to be in that film and, and to occupy those tremendous spaces of the New York Public Library, especially their main branch that's uh, such a beautiful building on Fifth Avenue. You're in the film? No, I'm not oh, in the film. Oh, no, I, I'm, I'm saying as, oh. a, as a viewer, oh. <laughs> it's, you know, it's a pleasure yeah. to, to be in, to get inside that yeah, film, yeah. sitting I, in your seat. Yeah, I can imagine, especially in libraries like um, the New York Public Library, which I know is a massive, it's probably, it's probably like a pretty big building. Yes, well, it's not just one building. It's, uh, you know, there's the main building on 5th Avenue and 42nd Street, but then there are something like more than 80 other locations uh, oh. around the city in Harlem, the Bronx, Chelsea, yeah. Chinatown, okay. oh. uh, et cetera. I guess, I guess it's kind of like Toronto Public Library has different... That's right, buildings. branches, oh, okay, yeah. okay, right, because they're more basic. Um, <laughs> um, okay, so for my next question, um, since this is a... Nerd, a nerd website. What is your favorite documentary and why? Oh boy, <laughs> um, you know that's probably constantly uh, shifting. Um, but uh, well, I'll tell you this as a way of answering that question. Uh, in October, um, I have a big birthday. I'm turning fifty on October seventh, and uh, and I decided for that 
birthday, I was going to go back to my hometown, Detroit, and do an event at the Detroit Art Institute uh, that I'm calling Documentary All-Stars, and I'm bringing together some of my favorite uh, filmmakers to show clips from their work. Um, and this is an event that's open to the public if anyone wants to come to Detroit on October 7th. So the filmmakers are Barbara Koppel, a two-time Oscar winner for her films Harlan County, USA, and American Dream. She made a terrific film released last year about uh, Sharon Jones, the, the singer. Uh, and the second director is Steve James, who's best known for Hoop Dreams, and also had a film here last year called Abacus, Small Enough to Jail. And the third filmmaker is uh, Nelson George, um, who produced Chris Rock's film uh, Good Hair, and uh, also has directed um, several films himself, including the documentary A Ballerina's Tale about uh, Misty Copeland. Uh, so those three filmmakers are going to be with me in Detroit on October 7th, and you know, as a way of answering your question, what's my favorite film? I'll I'll <laughs> I'll point to them as three of my favorite all of filmmakers. <laughs> all of them. I guess it's kind. I guess it's kind of hard because you can have different genres and each of them can connect for different reasons. So that's right. Yeah, for me, my favorite movie, I can admit, does shift at times. From well, how about your favorite documentary, Carolyn? Um, my favorite documentary. I would probably have to say the one about Jacques Cousteau. I don't remember the name of it, but I always remember it because growing up in, in Barbados, my favorite place is the beach. And that's mm -hmm. the, I, I've been living here yep. for eight years, and that's the one thing I miss is the beach. Yeah. And I, when I was younger, I wanted to be a marine biologist, and it was because of that film. And, and I think it was directed by his son. Okay. I think it, I think it was directed by his. But son. that right there shows you the power that a that a documentary can have is you know planting an idea of you know whether or not you became a marine biologist you know it it you could have taken that direction in your life. Yeah, I did, but chemistry is not my strongest. Is not my strongest. <laughs> when you when you start getting to carbon and hydrogen and all the atoms, it's like you know what I sounds know difficult. And it is, <laughs> but yeah, but it connects me because I I. I love the sea. It's my I, that's where I call I call it my peaceful place. Like mm -hmm. even if the water is rough, I also feel at peace in the in the water. And when I go home, I spend as much time at the beach at, at the beach as mm -hmm. I can. I've been scuba diving. I've been snorkeling. And for me, I always have the picture of him going um his taking his first dive off the boat, and he's on the water. And the first thing that we see is I believe it was a humpback whale. And I always have that visual in my head and. And for me, it's like, that's what I want to do. My, my greatest, if I could be any creature in the world, I would be a mermaid because I have the opportunity to live underwater and be surrounded by, <laughs> by, all, my, by, by all the fish and the dolphins and all the creatures. And for me, so yeah, I would say that documentary is it. I have to look up the name, but I think it was directed by his son. Okay. Yeah. And okay. And so I guess for my final question is, apart from documentaries, what other things do you nerd out, out about? So do you like games? Oh, okay. Um, you know, in, in my prior life career, uh, before getting into film, I worked for a comic book publisher, Fantagraphics Books, that publishes Robert Crumb and Love and Rockets and... Uh, uh, so, and I was the editor of a magazine called the Comics Journal, um, which still is published today. But that was um, that's what I did instead of going to college. Is uh, is worked for that magazine? Why not? Um, well, in that case, can you tell me? Since a lot of our uh, 
um, BGN's readers, they are comic book fanatics and they know things about, they can, they can quote runs and say, oh, this person did this run. And I'm like, I don't know. what. Yes. I mean, now that I've opened up the subject, I'm a little afraid that I'll be out of my depth, oh, uh, but, uh, but I'm go right on, hit me with a question. Um, so, okay. So what is your fame? Uh, what is your favorite comic book character? And if that's too loaded, I can say, I'm not, I'm not even going to ask you about DC or Marvel. It's mm-hmm. not, we're not going to go there, but which is your, what would be your favorite comic book character and run if you can name it? Um, so I would go outside of the superhero genre with comics um, and and point to the series Love and Rockets um, by the brothers Jaime and Gilbert Hernandez, uh, which is, in the early issues had some science fiction uh, elements, but um, you know mostly was set in a world uh, of Latinos in LA or um, or a mythical Latin American town of Palomar uh, in the stories of Gilbert Hernandez and uh, you know, th- those are you know worlds that you know are equal to any fiction that, um, that I've read and uh, so I would name Love and Rockets as my favorite, favorite okay. comic book. Okay so is there a, so I guess you would love to see that adapted into a film if you could have No, a, no? absolutely not. You want so like, it to stay on it's, paper? I, it's too beautiful. Uh, uh, like I, I'm not someone who, you know, <laughs> thinks that adapting something into a film is a way to improve it. I think the opposite. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you there sometimes because like for me, my favorite, um, Arthur is Jane Austen, and her books are my favorite books. And yes, you don't I, want to watch a movie I of a know. Jane Austen book. Sometimes you know. I see these adaptations, and I'm like, Mm-mm, no, mm, no. Yes. I will say the closest it, it's ever come to, for me, perfection is the BBC adaptations. So the one, so like the um, Pride and Prejudice adaptation and the one Sense and Sensibility yeah. with Emma Thompson. Like, I love, I love that film. And I would say my only other favorite adapta- adaptation is North. North and South, starring Richard Armitage. Okay. I love that. I love that um, adaptation. To me, it was, and I, because I read the book before the movie, and I read the book after, I'm like, they stay pretty, they stay pretty cool. So I'm, I'm with you on sometimes, so everything doesn't need to be adapted into a film. Um, so. I would describe myself as a hater of superhero <laughs> movies. A hater or purist? Wait, of all <laughs> movies? Of, of the superhero, of the Marvel and DC superhero movies. I think they're all crap but so maybe this is maybe i've just lost my bgn uh, no. uh membership card no i i can tell you 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 have not because we have some issues with some of the renditions of these uh, books especially DC. um yeah but no you're you're not alone trust me i see some things and it's like what am i watching i, <laughs> I, I did the review for my first movie review for bgn was transformers the last one and I had to force myself to stay in my seat. I literally had my bag in my hand. I tweeted, I said, someone help me. Yeah, I can't even get through the trailers of those movies. It was, I was like, no, I, my my friend tweeted, she's like, no, stay. I'm like, I made a commitment. I'm gonna do this review. Come hell or high red, I'm gonna do this review. I stayed and when I left the the cinema, the person behind me, he he did a deep sigh. He was like, and I was like, right there with you. Well, you did it once, Carolyn. You don't have to do it twice. Amen. <laughs> no, that was that was torture. But um, but yeah, I'm, I'm with you. Everything doesn't need to be adapted, and it's fine to prefer the books over the movies. Like we don't have to 
there's no struggle for it. You, you have your preference and it is what it is. Um, but if you could have a book adapted into film, well, you know, let me bring it back to the documentaries uh, <laughs> this year. There, there are uh, a few documentaries that have book counterparts. Um, so Grace Jones wrote uh, her memoir called um, I'll Never Write My Memoirs is the title <laughs> of her book. Uh, Andre Leon Talley wrote his uh, memoirs. Uh, I think it's just called ALT. Um, this terrific book I just recently read uh, after watching the movie. Uh, Jane Goodall um, has uh, written several books. So those are uh, three examples of, um, of uh, people who have put down chapters of their life in, uh, in book form, and now in, the, in this year's documentaries, we're getting a different version uh, of them. Yeah, I guess, and it's more open to... To people because there's some people who like to read books and some people prefer to see things on TV. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And look, when it comes to Grace Jones, I mean, she tells you know terrific stories in him in her memoir. But let's face it, Grace Jones is a visual person. You yeah. want to see her. Yeah, I, just, I, just, I can imagine the spectacle that, that is going to be to see her on screen. That'll be amazing. Can't wait for it. Yeah. Okay. So thank you so much, Tom. Thank you, Carolyn, for this interview for taking part. Um, it's been fun talking to you, and you're extremely knowledgeable. I must say, your memory is. is oh, well, a thing. that's my job. <laughs> <laughs> it is, but not everyone has a memory <laughs> that you can recall the names of the films and that and the directors off the top of your head. For me, sometimes it's like, eh. <laughs> But thank you so much for that. For thank this. you, Carolyn. Thank Shelley Stratton is an award-winning journalist who earned her degree at the University of Maryland College Park. Another Woman's Man, her novel written under her pseudonym Shelley Ellis, was nominated for a 2014 NAACP Image Award. A film buff and an amateur painter, she lives with her husband not far from Washington, D.C. ShelleyEllisBooks.com is where you can find her books, and her latest book is called Between Lost and Found, about the life of Janelle Marshall. Her perfect, upscale career and successful boyfriend will make her future seem secure and predictable, as her childhood never was. And with a little luck, little Bill, the grandfather who raised her, will someday understand why she'd rather play it safe than be impulsive. But just when she should be happiest, she gets a distressing call. Little Bill has gone missing, and now Janelle must go to the one place she's long avoided, the tiny mountain town of Mammoth Falls, South Dakota. Shelley Ellis is also a co-author on the upcoming Penguin Random House book called Black Girl Nerds. Welcome to the BGN Podcast. This is your host, Kendall, and joining me today is author Shelley Stratton. Shelley has authored numerous books and has been nominated for various awards, including an NAACP Image Award in the Literary Fiction category, an African American Literary Award in the Romance category, and an RT Reviewer's Choice Award. Her most recent novel, Between Lost and Found, is a story about gaining the courage to take chances, learning to let go, and rediscovering the family and the self you thought you knew. And I have to say, it's a pretty fun read. Thank you, Shelly, for coming on the Black Girl Nerds podcast. Thank you for having me. So tell us a little bit about your book and what inspired you to write it. Well, um, my book is basically a, I would say, 
a romantic comedy, but with serious overtones. And I say my inspiration for the book was basically I had always been a fan of the uh, TV show. Um, I cannot believe I'm drawing a blank right now. But I had always been a fan of the TV show that took place in Alaska. It was in the 1980s and 90s. And I'm sure a lot of people would say, like, how can you not remember the name of the show? But I'm drawing <laughs> a blank right now. Um, and it it always, I wanted to have kind of like just a, a black woman inserted in that atmosphere. And I, like I said, I love fish out of water stories. And to have like this like urban, um, quirky, um, black woman and put her in kind of like this rural place with cowboys and in mountain people and how this really folksy atmosphere and to see what happens and and basically the whole culture shop experience and, and what she goes through while she's there and that's Janelle Marshall's experience when she travels to Mammoth Falls South Dakota it's so funny you you say that because I was actually going to ask you like what made you set it in South Dakota because that is something that I like I've never read anything like that before and I found it so refreshing that you have this black woman going to South Dakota and yes the culture shock is so real yeah <laughs> yeah I mean it was pretty it, it was it was funny and it it seemed just very authentic well, I'm, I'm glad because actually the scary part about writing this book is that I've never been to South Dakota. Um, but my um, husband, who um, is kind of an Air Force brat, spent some years in North Dakota. Okay. So I kind of just tried to gauge from talking to him and, and watching videos and um, reading about the people there to get an idea of what this place was like. And the reason why I wanted to put her there because I... I thought of as myself, as a black woman traveling, what would be one of the places that I would be like, just absolutely like, why would I go there? And one of those places I was thinking of, I, I would think would be like the Great Plains of South Dakota, because I couldn't think of any reason why I would want to go there. There wouldn't be probably a lot of black people. Um, the, the culture would be so different, like growing up as a, a woman on the East Coast and in the big city. And to me, putting someone in that situation where you're so um, just out of place and having to find your way and actually being surprised when you figure out, and I know this sounds cheesy, that on a certain level, there's some things about people that are pretty consistent. And she goes through that, Janelle Marl goes through that revelation when she goes to South Dakota and basically to part of the story is to look for her grandfather. And once she gets there, she starts to interact with people. And at first she's like, I, I have absolutely nothing in common with them. But the more and more she talks to them and the more she hears about their experiences and has conversations, she starts to see these commonalities and it's refreshing. And she starts to learn something not only about them, but also about herself. Yes. And uh, you know, the title between Lost and Found, I felt as I was reading it, I kept thinking, oh, like this applies to both her external journey and her internal journey because, you know, she's there looking for her grandfather who is lost. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but then she kind she is as well. And like the issues in her relationships, which I thought 
were absolutely hilarious. <laughs> By the way, um, so I thought that that all came together um, really, really nicely. What would you say is one aspect about your character, or if there is some quality in your character that you feel you can learn from? Well, I would say the aspect in her that I could probably learn from is. Um, and it was probably something that evolved over time in the course of the story. Um, her ability to humble herself, because she came in with a very strong idea, like, I'm coming in here, and I'm going to talk to these mountain people, and I'm going to find my grandfather, and I'm not taking any mess, and I don't, I'm, I'm just not putting up with it. And then once she gets there, and she meets, and she gets all these obstacles on her mission, and, and she's she has to humble herself and ask for help from other people. She has to um, get to know other because she, she doesn't know her way around this place. And so for me, probably learning to ask for help <laughs> is something that I wish I was better at. And I'm glad I was able to fulfill that through a character. And one of the um, other things that I really enjoyed about it um were like how you wrote the family dynamics because there's a lot of different relationships going on. So yeah. talk to talk to us a little bit about your your favorite uh, relationship in that book. I mean, you don't have to go into spoilers, of, of course, but just yeah. you know how you crafted it. Um, you know what your process was and which relationship uh, you enjoyed writing the most. Well, the one I would probably ha had the most fun writing was the relationship between Connie and her daughter Yvette. Um, mm -hmm. It was, was a, a good bit, one. <laughs> yeah, it was a little bit of back and forth um, with my um, agent when I was going through. I went through several drafts of this, and she's like, "Tone it down, tone it down," because their relationship is so confrontational. And I think the reason why it's so confrontational is because these two women who've been through a lot in their life and, and by the end the mother starts to acknowledge that they've been abused by men they've dealt with addictions because um, Connie was an alcoholic for many years Yvette was a drug addict and instead of going to each other with love they kind of took out all their aggression on each other like they they saw themselves reflecting in one another and it was so frustrating that they were kind of like why can't you be better but really they were just that was the message that they were projecting onto the, each other from themselves so by the end of the book they start to realize like wait maybe i'm so hard on you because i see so much of myself in you and of all the people that i want to hurt the least of all I would want to do it is to my own daughter or my own mother. And so that that was it was fun to see those characters kind of evolve and come to their own understanding of their relationship by the end of the novel. Yeah, because I, I was worried about them for a little bit. Like, where is this going? What's going to happen? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because it did like it got it got really tense but i think you know there are mother and daughter relationships out there like that so i thought that that was just something very uh, very different and also very real yeah. to um to show that so i was a little worried when 
okay, I'm like, all right, you have this black woman and she has this life and everything is all about being perfect. And then she goes to South Dakota and I'm like, okay, she's headed to Trump country. Um, and you definitely <laughs> exactly. sprinkled that in there. <laughs> yeah. And, and what was funny is that actually that was because the book was written before his election. Oh, and okay. so, yeah. And that was, it was really jarring for me because I was like, okay, I wrote this story and obviously there's something going on in that part of the country that completely caught at least me off guard. So I was like, okay, there's this undercurrent that's there. I got to put it into the book. And it's funny because some of the people who one person wrote a review and was like, oh, I can't believe you included politics in there. We need to escape from it. And I'm like, no, I think we need to confront it. Because obviously, a situation like that, a black woman, like you said, going into Trump country, she's going to encounter those type of things. Yeah, it would have been weird if you didn't have it in there. Exactly, exactly. Then I'm like, if it's hard to talk about the racial dynamic and not include politics in it, because they both influence each other. And so when she goes into that place and she sees those signs and she's like she coming from the East coast and she goes to Trump country and sees like Trump, uh, 2016, that is kind of, is jarring to her. Cause it's a reminder, like, all right, I'm, I'm not, I'm not in my home anymore. And so to me, that's why I had to include that stuff in the book because it reinforced what a lot of us to me felt, um, prior to the election, when you start to see like, okay, these, this this is obviously people who are very different than me and I'm literally seeing a sign that demonstrates how different they are from me. Yeah, and and you had one scene in the book which I won't spoil, but I was reading it. I was I said, "Oh, I have seen this on the news." Like I've seen <laughs> I think you know which one I'm talking about. Like Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I was I was hoping people would pick up on it. I was trying to like not be too heavy-handed. Uh-huh. But I was like I got I got to put this in here. I right. I mean it was it was just enough where you were like, you know, I it's like okay, I I see what you did there, but it wasn't it, at least to me it didn't read that way that it was that Okay, it was that's good. <laughs> <laughs> because I was like, "Oh, this this seems familiar. This seems like something I've seen on, you know, CNN." Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and then and then gradually it disintegrates, and you're like, okay, well, yeah, it, it kind of disintegrated in the real world too. Yeah. So, so <laughs> what? Um, so when did your your book just came out, right? Mm-hmm. Wasn't it just like in the last week or the last two weeks? Yep. Yep. It just hit bookshelves last week. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, what sets this book apart from other books that you've written? Well, the other books that I've written mainly have been, one, either in the romance genre or very heavy romantic element. And you can definitely see romance in Between Lost and Found because I'm like, that that's my core. That's where I started. And I, I don't necessarily see any problems with incorporating that element into books. But this one is a lot more serious. I try to include um, more nuance. Um, more metaphors. It's it's like it, it it was the step up that I took from my previous books. A lot of my other books were like all about the drama, all about the spice, and I'm like, no, I want to slow it down and really explore themes in my book 
that I've never been able to explore in the previous one because I had to just write that fast pace. Okay, the the intention of span is just not here. Just keep it moving type of books. And I and I was able in this time to like just let the story just sit and express itself. And what were some of your inspirations? I know you said um, like the, the the TV show it's, whose name you can't remember. Now I can't remember. It's Northern Exposure. Okay, Northern Exposure. I've actually never never seen that. I'm really? going to have to go look it up. Okay, okay, yep. <laughs> go check it out. So what were some other um, inspirations that you had um, aside from, from the TV show for that setting? Um, well, like I said, um, for the most part, it was just the, it was more of a theme type of inspiration rather than like a literal, like this book or TV show inspired me. Like it, I always like the fish out of water concepts. Um, I'm a black woman, so I often approach stuff from a black female perspective. So I definitely wanted a character where it was mainly told from her her viewpoint. Um, and I tried to put that all together in the book. So I, I, I wouldn't say that necessarily outside of Northern Exposure, there was really any like literary or film influence on it. And if you could pick any of um, your characters in the book to, you know, hang out with, go get some wine or have a beer with, who would it be and why? I think it would, I would probably go out with Janelle because she's the closest that I would consider to myself. Mm-hmm. Um, I think she would, she, she would, we would get each other. Um especially because I kind of had her, a lot of her basic personality was mine too. Um, another one I would probably consider is Sam because he's just... Oh, Sam. Yeah, we need to talk about Sam. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, no, go ahead. But I, I do, I do yeah. we do need to talk about Sam. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I would never turn down having like a coffee with a nice looking man so <laughs> I'd be more than happy to do that too where did, where did the idea um, of Sam come from and the decision to make him okay what was he was he um, wasn't a sheriff was it he's he was he was a police chief but oh, she accidentally police chief. okay okay yeah. okay yeah so where did where did that idea come from well um, originally in the first version of the book, I actually had him being like kind of a handyman guy. But once I, once my agent was like, okay, if her father disappears, why don't you have her like find out he's still gone? And I'm like, okay, well, the only person that I could see her really developing a strong relationship with would be someone who could find her grandfather. And to me, that would be the police chief in the town. And so that's the first person she really has, like, a serious interaction with when she comes to Man Falls. But I also wanted him to be kind of like, first she sees him, like, the reason why, I guess you probably call him sheriff, because she literally thinks of him as the stereotype of the sheriff in the old Wild West. Because when she physically sees him, he's like in like they're having a festival so he's in costume yeah yeah he's wearing a sheriff outfit and she's like oh my god like 
he really does look like a chef. And but then when she gets to know him, she finds out that that's just a stereotype that he's not really a sheriff. He's a police chief. And then he's a police chief who's kind of like ambivalent about his job. And there are different things going on in his personal life that influence how he does his job. And, and so, like I said, it was just uh, another element in the book of like people presenting one version of themselves. And then gradually you dig deeper and deeper and deeper. And you're like, oh, okay, you're not who I thought you were. Yeah, and and I think that that was one thing, like you said, the the romantic aspect of because it was definitely giving me Nicholas Sparks vibes, and I was <laughs> like, oh, I like this. <laughs> but you actually like like everyone that played a role in the novel was fleshed out. You know, there wasn't just a stereotypical type character like for, for the most part most of them were were pretty fleshed out and I thought that that just made it so much more more intriguing and interesting um yeah. especially so you know Janelle is there she's going to South Dakota to look for her grandfather but in the very beginning when you introduce him he is so hilarious was that inspired by anybody like <laughs> um her Pops? Yes. Yeah, well, I'm trying to think. When I think of Pops, I kind of think of, like, maybe kind of the... You remember Different World? Oh, yeah. They, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm trying to remember the character's name. He was, like, the military guy who was married to... Um, oh, married to Jaleesa? Yeah. And so I was kind of thinking of him as... An, inspiration because he was just so gruff and matter of fact about stuff but he kind of had kind of like this background sense of humor about things and like him in South Dakota what would he be like <laughs> and so that's how the character for Pops kind of came along because Pops is gruff and he doesn't care which is the reason why he's like the only black dude in town but everybody's like but he's still cool because he doesn't seem to care about anything so yeah, that that was the inspiration for that character. Yeah, his his one liners were pretty. <laughs> they were they they were they were pretty hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> so, who are some of your other um, favorite authors? Um, it depends on the genre. Like in kind of like serious women fiction, I I really like. I hope I'm not mispronouncing her name. I probably am. Um, Jojo Moyes. Um, another is Dorothy Combson. Um, she's a British writer. Both of them are actually British writers. Um, um, I'm trying to think. I think, yeah, in women's fiction, that's basically two of my favorite writers. And then I have favorites in, like, I read other kinds of books and I really like Colson Whitehead um I really like Stephen King um I really like uh Beverly Jenkins and romance so yeah I I I read across the board so I don't have really like one type of really strong author in one genre that I really like yeah why a wide variety what's your favorite Stephen King book uh and I'm so happy it's being adapted, is It. Oh, my God. <laughs> I'm so happy. That that movie, when I was younger, absolutely terrified me. It terrified Same. me 
to the point of like nightmares. I swear for a solid year, like of of Pennywise. And so when I was older, I was it was still terrifying. And I'm like, you're gonna have to face this demon and just read the book. And when I read the book, I was like, oh my God, this is such a good book because it has so many themes that you don't see in the movie about childhood and and innocence and and adults and their relationship to fear. And I'm like, I can't believe I waited so long to read this book. And I have read it maybe three or four times. Oh, wow. Yeah, because you get none of that in the movie. No, no, it's just, just, it's straight, just horror, like, this is terrifying. He's killing kids. This is absolutely horrifying. But you don't get any of those themes in the in in the movie that you get in the book. Yeah. So this new um, adaptation should be very 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 interesting. I I'm not quite sure yet if I am going to see it because I haven't <laughs> faced that demon just yet. I think I saw it way too young. Like I was. I, did not- I was entirely too young. <laughs> I, I think it's that 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 is a film that some people they're like thirty to forty years old that if you say like do you remember seeing it they get this look on your their face and you're like oh, okay yeah you saw it you saw yeah. it yeah. <laughs> they're like I'm not strong enough I'm not strong enough to look at it yet. <laughs> but I mean but it's true I mean you know you you read a book and you get a completely different experience. Yeah. Versus yeah. just this clown that comes back to eat kids every 30 years. Like, it's just... Yeah, I, I had a thing for Storm Drains maybe for, like, four years after seeing the TV show. Like, I just wouldn't go near Storm Drains because it was just so terrifying. Yeah. Well, you might you might have inspired me. Maybe I'll just go and, like, read the book. I'm on the fence about the movie, but at least the book, I could be like, yeah. okay, I could pick this up. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I'm like, the book is still pretty scary, but because it's like, I was like, okay, so there's more here than, than absolutely terrifying me for uh, almost two hours. Right. There's more There's more substance here. And we're older, you know, we're not, you know, like little, like the little kid that I was when I saw yeah. it and just completely like ruined me. <laughs> <laughs> same, same. <laughs> So uh, between Lost and Found is book number what for you? Oh, uh, if I go all the way back to the beginning, maybe book ten. Book number oh, that's such a, such a round even special I number. Know. <laughs> I know. I think it's book ten. Book number ten. So how does it feel? Have your tenth book finally published? I don't. It, I feel like it should be a sense of accomplishment. But I will say, every time you put out a book, emotionally, you've already moved on. Because mm. you're because pro- you probably have are writing maybe two books away from that. So even though the book is coming out, came out this week, I've already written another book that comes out in November, and I'm working on hey, another book. Yeah, I know that comes out next year. So even though you're like. Yay, but I don't get to enjoy it because I'm already working on something else. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, that that's a good thing, though, because you just always have the next the next project. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So if you could pick any fictional character, doesn't have to be your own, but just any fictional character to be your sidekick, who would it be? 
be my psychic? Huh. Because there are some characters that I really like, but I, I wouldn't want to deal with them in real life. This is true. Like, I love Mr. Darcy. I don't know if I would want to deal with Mr. Darcy in real I know. Because <laughs> I'm like, I'm a real Edith Wharton fan. Because okay. most people are like, I love Jane Austen. I'm like, I don't like Jane Austen. I love Edith Wharton. And I'm thinking of maybe, um, I'm trying to think of her name, the main character from The Age of Innocence. I thought she was a really good the Countess, um, a really great character. Fascinating. Mm -hmm. I don't know how I, if I would want to hang out with her. <laughs> but <laughs> I'm sure she would have good stories to tell. Good stories. I like the fact that, um, you know, with, uh, with all of your books, you know, like you said, there seems to be kind of like this, this running thing, like you kind of just dealt with the romance. Um, and this one was kind of different. How did it feel writing something different or that was just outside of what you what you said you would normally write? Well, it was scary because I, one, didn't know if I could do it. Um, I, even though I've been writing for a long time, I, I took journalism in college, but I did not take creative writing. I didn't take narrative novel writing. So all my writing is basically trial and error and what I'm reading and what I'd like and trying to mimic it in some shape or form. Um, so I was like, okay, am I doing these themes right? Are the metaphors too heavy? Are people gonna get it? Are the characters one-dimensional? I, I hope people like it. And, and then too, if you've already kind of, because this is under Shelley Stratton, but I write under another name, you're, you don't know if necessarily people will appreciate the new stuff if you've already feels like you establish yourself as another type of author if they know you as like a romance author are they going to like this shift and that was scary too um that i'm like i don't want to scare off people you know I, and i don't want people who usually read me to hate it so yeah it, it but it was it was a story that i felt like i needed to tell it it, in, in, I can't remember somebody said the, the stories are, that you're scared to tell are the ones that you should tell or the books that you're scared to write are the ones you should write so that's basically what I did with Between Lost and Found Oh that's great advice Yeah. so tell us what your if you can um, what your next projects are anything that you're working on and where we can find you on social media okay um I am, I have another book coming out under my other pen name, Shelley Ellis, and that's my more um, romantic fiction. Um, it's called To Love and Betray. It's very soapy, just like how it sounds in the title, um, and that comes out in November. Um, then I have another Shelley Stratton book that's coming out in March of next year. Um, is another type of more serious book. Um, and this time it in includes a historical element too. And, and that was another thing that was kind of scary because I've never done historical fiction before. Um, and that is called The House on Harbor Hill. And um, it, it deals with a black woman um, who was charged with murder of her white husband in the 1960s. Um, 
in the aftermath of what happened to her um, after all that happened. Ooh, I want to read that. Yeah, I, I'm like, I'm, I'm hoping that people, if, if people are kind of like, not sure about Between Lost and Found, the Harbor Hill book, that people are like, hmm, okay, I, I could get with that story. That, that's, <laughs> that's interesting. And where can we find you on social media? You can find me um, at my, um, on Twitter, I'm always on Twitter, um, at under Ellis Romance, at Ellis Romance, and you can also find me on Facebook, um, just type in Shelly Ellis or Shelly Stratton and I should pop up. Okay, cool. Thank you so much, Shelly. Thank you. For coming on the podcast. And Thank you for having me. And everyone go and check out Between Lost and Found. It's a, it's a fun read. Thank you. The Black Girl Nerds podcast is produced by Jamie Brodnax. Various episodes are edited by Jamie Brodnax, M.R. Daniel, and John Bauer. The opening theme song to our show is written and performed by Samus. Various instrumentals are performed by Samus, Sky Blue, and Shubzilla. You can find episodes of the Black Girl Nerds podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Art19, and Spotify. That was a HeadGum Podcast.